Well, good morning. If you would, turn in your Bible to John chapter 4. John chapter 4. Many of you know that I grew up in a small town in rural Missouri. I think I've shared with you before that Libby Kendrick likes to tease me that early on she, she thought when I talked about where I grew up uh, that she envisioned that I just walked out of the woods uh, one day. And nothing could be further from the truth. We were a completely modernized city in Fayette, Missouri. I can prove it because we had a stoplight. One. I remember one year in my little hometown, and this, uh, this narrative I may have shared with you before, I, I couldn't remember, but it, it's something that comes back to mind. Uh, and the older I get, the more impact it has on my thinking. Um, uh, one year, uh, on either end of where that one stoplight is, the main town that runs, or main road that runs through our town, uh, a member of our community, uh, Mr. Swaghauser, painted two signs to welcome people into our little town. They were bright blue, emblazoned with gigantic gold letters. I can remember seeing them from the, for the first time from the back seat of my mother's car. And the words emblazoned on them announced a truth that is so pivotal to the human experience. They simply said, Jesus is Lord. And what's remarkable isn't that those signs would be put at the edge of our city. What's remarkable in my own mind is that within weeks there was obviously some sort of a controversy because beneath the words, Jesus is Lord, in tiny white lettering, was placed over Fayette area churches. There was a qualification added to the sign because someone wanted to make it clear that Jesus was not Lord over them. And over the years, I watched as the sign changed. When Sarah and I got married years later, the signs read, Jesus is Lord. The churches of Fayette welcome you. Sometime after 2016, Sarah and I had already been here for three years, the sign was removed uh, again and redone. And this time, the statement, Jesus is Lord, was removed altogether. And this sign now stands that just merely says, the churches of Fayette welcome you. Some of you have wondered through the years why I'm so passionate about the sovereignty of God inside the church. Well, I can guarantee you it's not because of this little anecdotal story, although it illustrates the point. That there is nothing so important than an understanding of the sovereignty of God for the people of God, and yet there is nothing that a lost and broken world will press against more than the declaration that Jesus is Lord. Even the churches have forgotten this truth today. I, I can almost guarantee you, I don't know this for a fact, but I can almost guarantee you that that reproduction, that sign that currently stands, was paid for by the ministerial alliance of my little hometown. They made the decision to remove the moniker that Jesus is Lord. And friends, when the church forgets that Christ is Lord without qualification, 
the consequences are disastrous. So would you stand with that in mind and do honor to the reading of God's Word. We remember the woman at the well here. She, re- she, she returns after having been told that Jesus is the I Am. And she makes this profession of faith beginning in verse 29. Come and see a man who told me all that I ever did. Can this be the Christ? They went out from the town and were coming to Him. Meanwhile, the disciples were urging Him saying, Rabbi, eat. But He said to them, I have food to eat that you do not know about. So the disciples said to one another, Has anyone brought him something to eat? And Jesus said to them, My food is to do the will of him who sent me and to accomplish his work. He goes on to say, and these are our verses here today, Do you, do you not say, There are yet four months, then comes the harvest. Look, I tell you, lift up your eyes and see that the fields are white for harvest. Already the one who reaps is receiving wages and gathering fruit for eternal life so that the sower and the reaper may rejoice together. For here the saying holds true, one sows and another reaps. I sent you to reap that for which you did not labor. Others have labored and you have entered into their labor. Many Samaritans from that town believed in him because of the woman's testimony. He told me all that I ever did. So when the Samaritans came to him, they asked him to stay with them, and he stayed there two days. And many more believed because of his word. This is God's word to you and I today, beloved. Would you pray with me? Father, we come into your presence today so thankful that we know you as Lord that You are sovereign over every area of our life, that You have called us according to Your purpose and You are sanctifying us according to Your purpose. Father, we pray that we would have this truth emblazoned on all of our hearts. In Christ's name we pray. Amen. You may be seated. Several weeks ago we discussed the, the, the reality that in this narrative of Jesus meeting this nameless woman at the well, we have a pattern for the way that we can relate to a lost and dying world. In His testimony, in His witness, in His work to this one woman, we have an encouragement in our own lives. So we saw that He was relational. Uh, We also saw Him drawing this woman out, speaking to her. Uh, We also saw Him bridging the gap by talking about something that was near contextually and relating the truth about uh, the spiritual kingdom to that near reality. In this particular case, it was the living water that He spoke of. And then we saw Him herald the good news and draw this woman unto Himself. And Jesus then goes on, In verse 34, after his disciples have come to him and encouraged him to eat, and he says, My food is to do the will of him who sent me and to accomplish his work. Charles Spurgeon, told you last week, refers to that sentence as the golden sentence of the Bible. Uh, What Jesus says there is the summation of the entire life of Christ, that Christ came to do the will of the Father and to accomplish all things necessary for our redemption and salvation. And now what Jesus does here in this, these verses that we deal with today is He turns and He deals with His disciples. He, 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 he leans in and He points out the reality that they missed an opportunity. That while they were going off into the town for some food, He was dealing with the eternal soul of this precious woman that one day we will in fact meet. 
They were exhausted by their journey, and so they scurried in to get food. But he met with this woman and showed her compassion and care. Part of what Jesus does here as he, as he leans in to, to, to point out the opportunity that they had not been able to see, he could see the woman's need. They couldn't see her need. He could see the reality that this was a, a woman that he providentially was to interact with and that he was going to redeem this woman. They couldn't see that at all. Part of what he's teaching in this, as he subtly rebukes his disciples, is that there is a spiritual uh, a priority in our lives to the spiritual. Now, I want to be clear, we're not Gnostics. If you remember, the Gnostics are those who would say that all material things are bad, all spiritual things are good, therefore we'll live a life ignoring everything material and only paying attention to the spiritual. That's not at all what Christ teaches. It's not what the Bible teaches. But there is this emphasis all throughout Jesus' ministry, and I believe we see it here, that that which is spiritual is more important than that which is material and physical. One is fleeting and passing away, and the other one is eternal. Jesus knew also that the disciples had many opportunities ahead of them. He points to the Samaritan land and He points to the reality that there are many who will come to Him. And in fact, that reality comes to pass. And He doesn't want His disciples to miss another opportunity. Disciples of the Lord Jesus Christ, you and I in particular, are prone to missing out on the opportunities that God lays before us. We're prone to capitalizing on the material opportunities, but squandering the spiritual ones. If we read this narrative and we think, boy, these disciples, they just didn't have it together. That should comfort you, because neither do you. Neither do I. Uh, We tend to uh, make much out of the opportunities. If someone gets a promotion, we throw a party. But we should be more excited about the opportunity that God gives us every day to share the good news of the gospel. And that, I believe, is kind of what Jesus is leaning into here. Jesus explains to them, not only did He come to do the will of the Father, but also His body, those who are part of the body of Christ, those who are members of the bride of Christ, every one of us are called to complete in some measure our portion of bearing witness to the glory of Christ. Jesus then in His gentle way, He doesn't just blow up at His disciples, but He interjects here in verses 35-38 through 38, a proverb. The, 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 the foolishness of the disciples is so clear, I really don't need to belabor the point. Jesus, the One who is gentle and lowly, He leans in here with this proverbial saying, do, not, do, you, do you not say, there are yet four months, then comes the harvest? This was a colloquial reality that if you plant, you're going to have to wait until you can harvest. You're going to have to watch over the field and one day then you go back out and you harvest. But Jesus turns all of this and He says, look, I tell you, lift up your eyes and see that the fields are white for harvest. 
Already, the one who reaps is receiving wages and gathering fruit for eternal life, so that the sower and reaper may rejoice together. For here the saying holds true, one sows and another reaps. I sent you to reap that for which you did not labor. Others have labored, and you have entered into their labor. The the hills of Samaria were ripe for harvest and he didn't want them to miss this reality. Again, we've already read in verse 41, and many more believed because of his word. Jesus really wants his disciples to bear witness to his word that they would receive joy and he would receive glory. That truth hasn't diminished today. And beloved, I think this text, if you take nothing else away today, should encourage you that we dare not miss the gospel opportunities that God lays before us in our lives either. And so the question that we have to ask when we come to, when we come to the task of sharing the gospel, we've talked about the reality that Jesus here gives us a, an example of what it means to witness to His glory. And then we see that the One who has redeemed our souls has accomplished everything necessary for our salvation. He has done the full work of redemption. But then we have to ask the question, what motivates us to be engaged in missions and in evangelism? And the sad reality I'm afraid of today is that in a lot of places in the church, uh, the church is relying upon the rah-rah kind of uh, encouragement from the pulpit to be the motivating force for their diligence in sharing the Gospel. And can I tell you this? It'll never work. I can never give you enough encouragement apart from Scripture to cause you to testify to the glories of Christ the motivations for your being engaged in gospel ministry, not only in your giving, but also in the way that you live your life, has to come from the very words of God and it has to come from your relationship with the Lord Jesus Christ. And so the very first motivator, I believe, that motivates a true believing Christian to be engaged in the work of evangelism and in the work of missions and taking the gospel into all of the earth is this one fact. That Christ is our King and He has commanded us. Many of you know that one of the, well, one of the controversies of my early ministry here, it's not a controversy in the Bible, it's a controversy for men but not for God, is that God is absolutely 100% totally sovereign. Jesus is Lord, period, over our salvation. And so people will ask, well, if that's true, if God's really the one saving then why do, we need to, why do we need to witness? And the answer is, of course, well, if He has saved you, then He is your benevolent King and He also has commanded you to share the good news throughout your lifetime, everywhere that you go. I think a problem with so much missions work and so much evangelistic endeavor in our day is that we're doing it from a well we're doing it from our own strength and we're doing it in a results driven fashion people will say well have you been witnessing and if you say well yes I've been sharing the gospel well the question then comes well did it work if it didn't work then you need to change your method but friends can I encourage you that part of what we're told in this 
in this proverbial statement from Christ is that ultimately the, the harvest is up to the Lord. It is incumbent upon us to be faithful. Regardless of whether or not we see an increase, we're to go on sowing. We're to go on sharing the Gospel. We're to go on speaking. And, and here's the, the, the truth. If, if, if we look all throughout Scripture, when people re- this nameless woman comes to Jesus, you couldn't shut her up. She didn't need five steps to successful evangelism and get them through the door and give them a sawdust trail. You won't find any of that because what she had that was more efficacious than anything was a vibrant relationship with the living God. And out of the abundance of that relationship, then she goes on to share the witness. She had been given a command in some sense, and she went. The question this morning is not, have we been given a command? The question is, have we been faithful? And friend, if you're like me, the honest answer to that question far too often is no. Uh, We wonder why our community is in the shape that it is in. I watch from time to time our city council, and I watch the way that they make decisions, and I'm very thankful for our city council. I'm not always thankful for their decisions. But you know, the problem doesn't reside behind the dais at city council. The problem resides inside of a church that refuses to live in light of the commands that she has been given to speak of the glories of Christ. That is the real problem in our age. And, and, and it's interesting here to, to look throughout the Gospels. Some people may say, well, Jay, I don't know that I would agree that these are true, truly commands. And Friends, they are in every single Gospel is punctuated with Jesus giving an expressed command to His disciples to go and take the Gospel into the entire earth. And the, the beauty, if you look at all of them and then punctuated with Acts, is that there is a different emphasis in every Gospel. Matthew chapter 28, you'll well remember, all authority in heaven and on earth has been given to me. Go therefore and make disciples of all nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father, the Son, and the Holy Ghost, teaching them to observe all that I have commanded you. And behold, I am with you always to the end of the age. The emphasis rightly understood here is the authority of the Lord Jesus Christ to give the command. Jesus is Lord. It doesn't matter what you write on the sign outside of the city. He is Lord. And if He has called you, He's also lovingly commanded you and equipped you. In Mark chapter 16, He says, Go into all the world and proclaim the Gospel to the whole creation. Whoever believes and is baptized will be saved, but whoever does not believe will be condemned. The emphasis here in Mark's Gospel is is on the impending final judgment that is coming. Those outside of Christ, beloved, will perish in their sins. It doesn't matter how moral they are. It doesn't matter how much you like them. It doesn't matter how many good deeds they heap up for themselves. Apart from Christ, every man, woman, boy, and girl will perish in their sins. So not only does Jesus have the authority to command, there is an impending judgment that is coming. 
In Luke chapter 24, we find then these words. Then He said to them, These are My words that I spoke to you while I was still with you, that everything written about Me in the law of Moses and the prophets and the Psalms must be fulfilled. Then He opened their minds to understand the Scriptures. And He said to them, Thus it is written that the Christ should suffer on the third day Arise from the dead, and that repentance and forgiveness of sins should be proclaimed in His name to all nations, beginning in Jerusalem. You are witnesses of these things, and behold, I am sending the promise of my Father upon you. But stay in the city until you are clothed with power from on high. The emphasis here in Luke is on Christ being the fulfillment of Old Testament prophecy. The preaching of the cross is in fact the blessing to the nations. Our work of evangelism is that important. And finally, in our dear Apostle John's Gospel, we find... In John 20, verse 21, this simple statement, Peace be with you. As the Father has sent me, even so am I sending you. The emphasis plays here on the reality that Christ is the monogenesis, the one who was sent into the world to redeem the world, the one who came to do the will of the Father, the one who accomplished all of the work that was laid before Him. And now as He had accomplished all of the work for redemption's sake, He also commissions and sends you and I into our own lives and into our own world to declare the Gospel. As Christ was commissioned, so are we. And Acts punctuates this glorious reality. The reality that Christ has authority. The reality that the final judgment is coming. The reality that He is the yes and amen of the Old Testament. The reality that we are now commissioned in Acts chapter 1 declares this, It is not for you to know the times or the seasons they had asked about the reestablishment of the nation of Israel that the Father has fixed by His own authority. But But you will receive power when the Holy Ghost has come upon you and you will be My witnesses in Jerusalem and in all Judea and Samaria and to the end of the earth. Beloved, the command to evangelize is not given to a select few. The command to evangelize, to share the good news of the Gospel, is not just for those that we put in a missionary bulletin once a year. The command to preach the Gospel, in some sense, to share the Gospel, to live in light of the Gospel, to bear witness to the glories of Christ, is a personal command given to every single follower of the Lord Jesus Christ. You, If you say, I have been saved, I am in Christ, you are also saying, I have been commissioned by the King. And that is what we find without controversy here in the text. So first, we're motivated by the command of our sovereign King. Jesus is Lord, and He has commanded us to carry forward His Gospel. We're also, and this plays into what I've already said said in reading Mark's uh, Gospel and rendition of the, the commission of the saints, we're also motivated by the knowledge that men and women are really lost without Christ. People are not only lost in this life. When we speak of someone biblically being lost, we're not talking about a temporary problem. 
We're not talking about them merely. Well, my wife has had to has had to set through my lostness at times as I'm driving and I refuse to look up the directions. It's not that kind of temporary problem. It's a problem that is absolutely eternal without the remedy of Christ. The, the co-worker that drives you up the wall, that individual that is in your family, the, 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 the person that you once called friend but you're estranged from, that individual who is apart from Christ is not facing a small problem. They're facing the eternal wrath of Almighty God. We remember that Paul tells us in Ephesians chapter 2, remember that you were at that time separated from Christ, alienated from the commonwealth of Israel and strangers to the covenants of promise, having no hope and without God in the world. I think if you understand that for what it's worth, at John, 1 John chapter 5, verse 19, we are of God, but the whole world lies in the power of the evil one. Do you remember me saying that statement over and over and over and over again? There was a reason because it's important to understand. You marry that with what Paul is saying here in Ephesians chapter 2. There is nothing more hopeless than being in a world that lies in the power of Satan's hand apart from God. But that is the real reality of everyone we come into contact with apart from Christ. John John's Gospel bears this out. Everyone, We're going to watch today on the, 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 the screens the, the football game. Boy, I was asked this week when I went to go get tea who I was pulling for. And I said, the Chiefs. And the little lady that was getting my tea, I watched her. Because she kind of threw a little bit of a fit and I was afraid she might spit my tea. And she was keeping track up on the board. And I would, I'm glad to tell you this morning that the Chiefs fans in this town largely outweigh the 49ers. If you're on the other side, it's okay. Love you too. But we're going to see today John 3.16 plastered all over the place. We always do. But the real truth that this lost nation needs to hear more than John 3, as much as John 3.16 is John 3.18. Whoever believes in Him is not condemned, but whoever does not believe is condemned already because he has not believed in the name of the only Son of God. Now, we live in a country of religious freedom, and I'm thankful for that. I don't want the state dictating issues of my conscience and worship. God is able to bring sinners to make them saints and bring them to worship Him. But the reality is we can believe that in a way that we think, well, it, it, because we have that religious freedom, everybody can just believe what they want to believe. It's all okay. Beloved, the, John 3.18 doesn't leave us with that room. Those who are outside of Christ are perishing in their sins. And we've already uh, seen that judgment is coming. Those who are outside of Christ are still under the wrath of God. Judgment is coming. Could happen at any moment. There are two theological arguments that are lobbed against. There is nothing that is more unpopular outside of the sovereignty of God than the judgment of God. Liberal churches all across this land are happy to proclaim Jesus as long as He is not sovereign and as long as He's not returning to judge them. Well, the problem is when you remove His sovereignty and you remove the impending judgment, you remove the biblical Christ altogether. 
And here, uh, there are two theological arguments that live large in our day, and I would argue that they impact every church. There was a time that, that communities lived with, uh, there would be a church in that particular community, and the theology of that community was the theology of a given church, but that doesn't happen anymore. Now there is kind of an amalgamation of theologies, and people come, and they, they may call themselves Baptists, Lutherans, Presbyterians, Catholics, whatever, and often there is just this blending of theologies and they just repeat things without having thought them through logically. And so what comes against the church today colloquially and against this truth of Jesus' impending judgment first is the doctrine of universalism. That God will one day just redeem everyone. We live in the day of, you've heard me talk about the, the, the time of the Reformation and the heralding of justification by faith alone and that that is the hinge upon which the entire church turns. Well, I will tell you that that hinge has been replaced in our day and now there is a proclamation of justification by death alone. That means the only thing that you have to do to be promised heaven is to die. If you're dead, some pastor will proclaim to those who loved you, they're in heaven. I won't do that. If you've not repented and believed on the Lord Jesus Christ, I can't assure people that you are in glory. Because your justification is not tied to some universalism that says, well, God's going one day, Brian, just to redeem everyone. In fact, the Bible is, speaks completely contrary to that reality. So not only is there this universalism, there's also a relativism. A relativism that says, well, look, you can believe what you want to believe. I'll believe what I want to believe. And ultimately, universalism, relativism, tied real close together, relativism kind of leans in the direction of, of universalism. Relativism says, look, we're all marching our way to heaven and Dallas, we just meet each other at various states of sanctification and, and one day it'll all work out and you just don't worry about it. That's not what Jesus is saying here. Jesus isn't giving any room for universalism or relativism. Everyone outside of Christ will perish in their sin. If you're here today, I love you enough to tell you outside of Christ, outside of repentance and belief in Christ and in Christ alone, the wrath of God abides upon you. And it doesn't matter if you find a bunch of modern day preachers who will tell you that's not true. It doesn't matter if you find individuals who in all of their enlightened thinking will refute different truth claims of the Bible. The real life facts are that today, the bulk of humanity lies under the wrath of Almighty God. And they are apart from Christ. And that should motivate us to share the Gospel. I think part of the problem in our lack of missional zeal, evangelistic zeal, is that we downplay the problem. It's not that big of a deal. It, it, it's not really that big of a problem. That's just not true. So not only has Christ commanded us as a motivator, but He also has told us that men are lost without Him. He also has shown us that we are called to meet the common needs of man. Now I want to, I want to stop here for a second and just make very clear that this, what I'm about to talk about is not the same thing as what we hear from our liberal friends all the time. Liberals will say that missions exist 
to feed people, to engage them socially, to bring them up in their, their social standing, their, their political systems need to be revamped, all of those things. There's all kinds of liberal theologies that, that will say, look, if we just feed people and we take care of their health care and we do all of these outward things, then we're really accomplishing what Jesus intended us to accomplish. The problem with liberal theology is not that they're wrong in a love for the common graces of humanity, those areas of life where whether we're redeemed or, or inside of in Christ. Um, can you answer this? The problem with liberal theology isn't that they're engaged with feeding the poor with building hospitals, with engaging people at a social level, with, with material ministry. The issue with liberal ministry is the emphasis that they place on those things over and against the reality of the spiritual need. And remember here, this is a great text where we see that Jesus, they go to get a sandwich and Jesus deals with the spiritual. And I think, a, a, again, a priority is set here. We should be people that prioritize the Gospel above every material reality in the lives of those that we love. But I also don't think that our witnessing uh, of the Gospel is less than meeting the common needs of our fellow man. We see that the Lord was concerned with the sick and the poor and the needy and the lonely. We see that He healed people. And why? Because it brings glory to God when He engages with humanity in this way. It brings glory to God further when we who have been taken from the darkness and transferred into marvelous light engage the darkness in such a way. It's not so we just merely build a social program and make this earth better. It is that we glorify God as we love fellow image bearers in the material ways. I think some of us in conservative circles, we're so worried that we might look liberal that we just stop doing things in this strata altogether. Well, we're going to... And you know the crazy thing is, Cam? Sometimes we isolate our, insulate ourselves from from feeding the, the, the needy and from visiting those who are sick and from doing those kinds of works with the auspices of the Gospel is primary. Well, of course the Gospel is primary. The proclamation of the Gospel should always be primary. But the odd thing is often the people that won't get their hands dirty also actually don't make the Gospel primary. Jesus, listen, if, Brian, if the Son of God can descend from the glories of heaven and meet with a nameless woman at the well, or a nameless preacher, or any one of us, and meet us in our need, and share the good news of the Gospel and draw us to Himself, why in the world would we not expect to get our hands dirty? I had a conversation with one of my boys, and I won't embarrass them uh, by telling you which one. I'm sure after church they're all going to be denying that it was them. But I had a conversation with one of my sons, and I love him dearly, but I, I said, boy, you need, to, you, need to, or, or, you need to do a little bit of work. And he said, no, I don't think so. And I said, no, I promise you, you need to work. Clatworthy's get their hands dirty. And his response was, I'm a, I'm a, I'm a rare, I'm a mythic Clatworthy. I don't get my hands dirty. And I said, boy? And he said, what? And I said, I'm going to stir you up in a mud hole here in a second. You will work. 
And friends, and, and the disconnect I think sometimes is this. We're so afraid of speaking of the things that Christ would have us do in our own generation, in our circles, because we might tip in the direction of, of indicating somehow that you're saved by doing good works. That is an awful insulator to this motivating part of our evangelism and witness. Our meeting the physical needs of other people is not how we become saved. It is the fruit of having already been saved. But we need to have our hands dirty. Some of us, and this might step on some toes today, and I, I intend to. Some of us are so good at talking about theology, but the problem is, like my son, we don't want to get our hands dirty. Friends, if all we ever do is talk about theology, we've forgotten our heritage. We have forgotten that the Lord who redeemed us walked in this dirt. He got dirty. He, listen, some people, well, if I go and, and witness to someone of ill repute, I may, now we do need to be wise and all of those things, but I, they, I, may, I may be dirty. I may get dirty. I've thought about that several times. I've had people say that to me. I don't want to get dirty. Get? You've already done gotten. That's the way you started. And any level of sanctification where you've been cleansed is only by the grace of God. So we're motivated to do uh, our gospel witnessing first because it's a command. Also, because of the reality that men are lost apart from Christ and also because it brings glory to God when we share in the common graces of the lives of other people. Johann Sebastian Bach, you'll remember him. Great cello music. Good stuff. I, I, I think about some of these, Chopin and others, that you know, we've been listening to their music for thousands of... Taylor Swift's going to be at the Super Bowl today, y'all. I guarantee you 500 years from now, if the Lord tarries, ain't nobody playing Taylor Swift. No one. But here, Bach, um, he was summoned by King Frederick the Great and, uh, to play in, in the king's court. And, and he had decided and told those he was traveling with, when I get there, I want to be taken immediately to an antechamber where I can change and where I can, I can cleanse myself from all of my traveling so that I don't look like a fool in front of the king's courtiers. But as soon as they pulled up to the gate, the individual there told Bach and his entire entourage, that the king demands that you come immediately to his court. Well, what are you going to do? Are you going get, to go, go get washed up? Now, I can tell you if it was Sarah Clatworthy, what would happen? She would ignore the king and go do whatever she wanted and then go up there. But Bach knew in this particular political climate and day and age, if the king tells you to come, you come. And so he did, and he was derided and mocked by all of the high-browed people in society because he had come into the king's court dirty. But King Frederick the Great corrected his entire entourage, and he told Bach to play. Later, Count Zinzendorf would remember this story and relay it to the Christian life, and he, he, would, he would punctuate that narrative of Bach 
coming, and think about this, one of, the, one of the best musicians of all history coming to play before the king, and he's a filthy mess. And Zinzendorf says in light of that, nothing is more beautiful than a dusty warrior. The problem with the church today, beloved, is that we've stopped believing that. We somehow have this idea that we need to be these perfect polished specimens to be used of God, but I pray for the, the time in this place where we are a people known for giving our, getting our hands dirty in service to the King, namely so that we can share the Gospel with others. Christ has commanded us, men are lost, common graces need to be met, but most importantly, and this is what I came here to talk to you today about, opportunities to witness abound. If we really saw with the lenses of Scripture, if we were more like Jesus and less like these disciples that we find going to get a sandwich, we would see that there are opportunities everywhere to share the Gospel. I can remember taking a personal evangelism class years ago in my undergraduate, and I remember thinking, In our cultural time, it's just not polite in so many instances to share the Gospel because of so much pluralism and relativism and universalism. And I can remember thinking, boy, now how am I going to get in three months' time an opportunity to witness to two different people? What a sad state of affairs that was. Because the reality is opportunities abound. Here we are given two examples. One, a group of men who were so consumed with their present circumstances that they neglected the spiritual joy of heralding the kingdom. And we also see the Christ who suffered the same needs, who was physically parched, but He met this woman at the well and He did the will of His Father who had sent Him and accomplished the redemptive task for which he came. One had eyes for the temporal opportunities, the other for eternal. Now, beloved, I'm not trying to be on your case today, but I know what it's like to be human. Every one of us in here today, we are consumed with temporal opportunities. But when you look at the possibility of buying a new house, as Sarah and I are, it's amazing how many thoughts race through your mind about the opportunities and, and what's going to have to happen to make all of that come to pass. You know what? That stuff doesn't even matter. Not even close in comparison with the eternal opportunities. Many of us go into the workplace and we work and we work and we work and we look for opportunities for what? To advance. For a pay raise. Can I tell you, if the entire world's wealth was at stake in a potential opportunity for a pay raise, it doesn't even come close with comparing with one opportunity to share the Gospel of the Lord Jesus Christ. Opportunities do abound. It's just that we are so focused on the temporal opportunities that often we miss the eternal ones. Some of us think that our circumstances exist to provide for our temporal needs, but can I tell you that your temporal needs exist to provide you with opportunities to witness to the glory of God. Everything in this life, your job, your family, your possessions, everything that you own exists to provide an opportunity to speak about the redemptive works of Christ. And this isn't isn't one of those things that I would budge on because this is the entire impulse of John's Gospel. 
That He is the one who has created all things and all things that were made were made through Him. Why? Because this is the theater of redemption. This is the theater that shows not only God's creative power to make all things, but all things that He has made come to one in, namely, the redemptive work of Christ. So if you have a, a, a friend that's driving you up the wall, praise God. That is an opportunity uniquely gifted to you to speak redemptively to that person. If you have a family that drives you nuts, join the club. The support group is... Uh, <laughs> that is a gift to you that Christ would be able to display that yes, this family is broken, but Jesus is yet Lord. And He can redeem. Now maybe not temporarily, but eternally. And oftentimes both eternally and temporarily. We neglect to see the opportunities that abound all the time. We live with eyes for everything that is temporal and we miss that which is eternal. Christ has authority. The final judgment is coming. He is the yes and the amen of the Old Testament. We are now commissioned. And so the question comes, Will we seize Dallas on these opportunities? We know these truths. We know that Christ has the authority. We know the final judgment is coming. We know that Jesus is the yes and amen of the entire Old Testament. We know that we are commissioned. And we also know that there are opportunities just like these disciples had. And we know that far too often we miss those opportunities. Braxton. This week, you will see young people broken under the weight of a system that is beyond repair. But that will afford you with unique opportunities that none of the rest of us have. Drew, wherever Drew is, you will meet with young minds that are forming a, a worldview, and you will have an opportunity to engage them. I see you, brother to engage them with the Gospel, to, to lean in. Those opportunities sovereignly belong to you. Dallas, there are people in Robert Lee who have lived in a form of the Gospel their entire life, but it is a Gospel of works and not one of grace. And those opportunities, my dear brother, belong to you and to your family. Brian, you will serve people who ultimately serve the citizens of our community. You are the servant of servants, and there is a wonderful calling in that. And in all of the mess and all of the bureaucracy, I love Brian, one of my dear friends. My favorite nickname for him is bureaucrat. But this, uh, one of the things I know about my friend is that he genuinely loves his position because he loves serving other people. Public service is part of his heritage and part of his heart, and that work is difficult at times. But that difficulty won't be lost because it's afforded to you by our sovereign King who has commissioned you to engage in those places. Lana, you're going to meet a lot of idiots around this town this week. If you're visiting today, Lana lovingly calls us... If she calls you an idiot, it's a term of endearment, not derision. You're going to meet many idiots all over the community who need the love of Christ. And only you will have those opportunities. Sarah, you're going to spend the week largely with our children and have the opportunity to mold their little minds and to shape them. And what they need out of their mother more than anything else is to see the love of Christ 
displayed to see that your King really is the Lord of every area of your life. Our dear brother Chad, who I don't think is here today, will walk into many hospital rooms and meet with people who are facing dire circumstances. And he will be able to parse through all of what's going on and what will be revealed is that they need the truth more than they need any material healing. Kim, you will serve alongside of men who need the gospel more than a paycheck. And brother, your work matters. And you have opportunities that no one else does. For those of you here, now here's the basket term. For those of you who are here today who are living in retirement and you think, my time is gone. Those opportunities are behind me. I promise you they're not. The opportunities for you to witness to the glories of Christ end when you lay in a box right here. But until that day, your life is continuing for one purpose. It's kind of the flip side of the passage that we find Peter writing about. The reason why Jesus tarries is because He's still redeeming His church. And the reason why Jesus tarries in bringing you to Himself is so that you can do the works that He's called you to do. That you can capitalize on those opportunities. Beloved, I am disgusted by a church that forgets the sovereignty of God. I'm frustrated and disgusted by it more in my own life than anywhere else. But I'm also disgusted by a church that would abuse the reality that God is sovereign. And I see this in reform circles all the time. It, it, it's done in this way. Well, Kim, the Lord is sovereign over all things. He will save whom He will save. Let's go watch the football game and not worry about sharing the gospel. You see how we've abused the sovereignty of God in doing that? No, no, it's because He's sovereign that we do, in fact, witness. It, this is the problem for all of humanity. And we like to think we're, uh, we're in a theological camp that believes and heralds the sovereignty of God, most of us in this room. Oh, beloved, but we're still we are still stutters and sinners. Um, the, the, the problem is that we don't live under that sovereignty. The problem is that we have been given minds where we parse out His sovereignty. Where we think Jesus is Lord, but then we pause and we start qualifying. I, I had, when I preached through John, uh, uh, Ephesians chapter 1, uh, a chapter of Scripture that doesn't, Paul doesn't go, well, I'm going to try and veil this doctrine of God's sovereignty and salvation. Not even close. He like a roaring lion. I mean, he just lets it all out. And I had a dear Christian sister that's no longer here come up to me and very kindly say, well, Jay, I understand that Jesus is sovereign. He's sovereign in, in, in giving us giftings and He's sovereign uh, over our physical life and He's sovereign over the position that we hold in the church. But over our salvation? My friends, we all do that. We all qualify the sovereignty of God. I, 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 the, the older I get, I used to think it was a bunch of liberal people in my town that caused uh, Mr. Swaghauser to emblazon the, the qualification underneath Jesus as Lord. But that's not a liberal problem. That's a human problem. We all seek to qualify the, the sovereignty of God in our lives.
We've got to stop doing that and living under this phrase, Jesus is Lord. That's the end of it. He's sovereign over everything. He is not only sovereign to save, He's also sovereign to commission. He's also sovereign over our faithfulness. And guess what? This text teaches us He's sovereign even over the results. Do you know, there are some, there's a pastor who was asked, he said, we have 19 to 30 salvations in our church every week. And he was asked, well, what would happen if the number fell below those statistics on average? He said, well, I would fire my staff members and I would find new interns that could get the job done. I mean, I'm a... It's starting to occur to me the more I look at the picture here, Libby, those are probably the woods that I walked out of. I understand a bag limit. Like growing up in the sticks, you, you understand that, that you know, there's, there's a number, there's a quota that you've got to have. Jesus doesn't work that way. He doesn't call us to meet a certain number of salvations. He calls us to be faithful. You know what happens often? Not always, but often when we're faithful? I think Paul said that he does exceedingly abundantly above all that we could think or ask. Now, we may not see that in this lifetime. But Jesus will bring every individual home that he intends to. Our God is sovereign. He's not only sovereign over our salvation. He is that. But He's sovereign over every area of our life. That means He can command us. That means He can instruct us that He's coming again and there will be a judgment. That means that we should bear His image and get our hands dirty meeting the needs of our neighbors even if they despise the Gospel. That means that we should look for every opportunity in our lives not only to say but to live in such a way that the lost and dying world around us can see that our King is Lord. There's a small voice that's going to rise up in you after all of this, and it's going to say, but Jay, I can't. You just don't understand. I have social anxiety, and so witnessing to the Gospel to people that I don't know, that I just meet by chance, is not in my nature. I believe that. I believe totally that you're a sinful, depraved wretch deserving of hell, and that in your own strength, you can't witness to the glories of God. But let me ask you a follow-up question. Are you in Christ? And if the answer to that question is yes, then let me encourage you, greater is he that is in you than he who is in the world. And Satan wants nothing more than for a bunch of people who have read through their Bible to believe in the sovereignty of God and apply it in such a way that it would stilt and stifle our heralding of the Gospel. But the real sovereignty is that when He saves a human soul, He commissions it, He calls it, He motivates it, and He moves it into the world so that the glory of His grace might be known. And in the final days, Billy Graham is not going to stand up and say, look at all of the people that came to Christ by me. 
There's no wise elder statesman necessarily. Now you can get some practical help in evangelism, but in, in this endeavor, ultimately we are all merely called Dallas to be faithful with those opportunities. And I've tried to enumerate some of them. They're going to come this week. I want you to have at the forefront of your mind that there are opportunities out there I'm missing them. I want you to be anxious about that. But I ultimately want you to rest in Christ knowing that it is He who will accomplish His work in you. He's already said, my food is to do the will of Him who sent me to accomplish His work. And a belief simply that I can't is a belief that removes you from Christ. But in Christ, He can do all the work that the Father has sent Him to accomplish. Beloved, Jesus knew. We talked about this last week and I'm done. Jesus knew. Do we all agree? Say amen if you agree that we've been commissioned to witness the Gospel. Good. Good. We've also seen in the backdrop that Satan came up with a different scheme on his own and he said, I will, I will, I will. He came up with his own way. I believe that's the problem in religious circles today. We don't see the flourishing of the church because the church is about their own willful way. But if we would merely do what Christ did and be obedient to the Lord to herald the gospel, it would bring life and blessing to many. The material world is going to lie to you and tell you that your neighbor has an ultimate need that is beyond you. And that's only a half-truth. The need is beyond your capability in many ways, but it's a need that you understand. It's a need for redemption in the face of the Gospel. It's a need to simply speak the truth that all men have sinned and gone their own way. And Jesus came in the fullness of time by the direction of the Father to live perfectly and to die to atone for the sins of all who would call upon His name. And if you will call upon His name, you will be saved. Friends, Jesus is Lord over everything without qualification. Let's simply learn to live like it. Would you pray with me? Father, we come into Your presence acknowledging the reality that we miss the opportunities far too often. We get discouraged, get idolatrous, we get sidetracked into this material world. But you, our Father, have never failed at your plan of redemption. And so we ask that you would give us memory, even throughout this week, of the opportunities that have been laid before us to live lives that are worthy of a sovereign King, one who's redeemed us, who's ennobled us, who's made us His own, who's seated us, as Paul tells us, in heavenly places. Father, might we live in light of these truths and might we joyfully proclaim the good news of the Gospel. Not in a way that pushes people away, not in a way that pushes uh, religious imperatives on them unnecessarily, but a, a proclamation of the Gospel that heralds the reality that you saved by grace and that alone. What a joyful truth that we have to go into this community with. And Father, we're mindful of the reality that throughout church history, this Gospel has been used to stem the tides of, of so much evil in this world. Father, we desire to see genuine, spirit, 
filled revival in our own day, a genuine awakening. And Father, we know that far too often we are unwilling vessels. And so we simply come today asking, would you make us willing? Would you crush us from being so enamored with everything that's temporal that we would latch onto and take advantage of the opportunities that you have given for us to to speak the glory of the gospel. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. If you would stand and we'll sing Jesus paid it all.